How many would have enjoyed an extra hour of sleep this morning if you'd remember to put your clocks back? How many of you would have liked to have enjoyed an extra hour of sleep, but you're laying there in your bed and you're not sleeping? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. I, I know that there are a number of you who do struggle with sleep, and it is, it's awfully difficult to be sitting there. You've got the time. You've got an extra hour. You're laying in the bed, but the sleep doesn't come. And so I was interested as I read uh, something by James Smith this, uh, this week on falling asleep. And uh, tell me if you can relate to this. He says, I cannot choose to fall asleep. The best I can do is to choose to put myself in a posture and rhythm that welcomes sleep. And, and as I'm thinking, this may be some, why some of you came this morning. You're thinking, this is a posture where I, I think I could sleep if I hear this guy any much longer. Anyway... He says, I lie down in bed on my left side with my knees drawn up. I close my eyes. I breathe slowly, putting my plans out of my mind. But the power of my will or consciousness stops there. I want to go to sleep, and I've chosen to climb into bed. But in another sense, sleep is not something under my control or at my beck and call. There is a moment when sleep comes, settling on this imitation of itself, which I've been offering to it, and I succeed in becoming what I was trying to be. And then he says, sleep is a gift to be received, not a decision to be made. And yet it is a, it is a gift that requires a posture of reception, a kind of active welcome. I, I think that's true of sleep. I also think that that's what he says about sleep is true about uh, what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. We don't get to choose his itinerary. We don't set his schedule. But we can have an active posture uh, that welcomes him, that receives him, that, uh, that invites his work in our lives. And uh, that's a big part of what today's passage is talking about. We go back today to the day of Pentecost when... Uh, Peter said this is a fulfillment of what the prophets had long predicted would take place. It was an outpouring of God's Spirit on God's people. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. We have uh, been in a series uh, starting last week on prophecy. And today's passage is, a, is it not only quotes a prophet making a prophecy, but it is a prophecy about prophecy. Uh, so I thought it would be important for us to, uh, to work through this passage as we uh, try to understand uh, what prophecy is and, and uh, how, how it works. But as we pick up the narrative, Peter has been, uh, he's been at, the, at the day of Pentecost. There's been this remarkable event where God has poured out his spirit and people have begun to speak in various languages to uh, those who had, who had gathered there. And he's trying to explain what, what was happening. And as he does so, he points to, uh, to a, uh, an Old Testament prophecy and I want to look together uh, uh, at it with you. Hear what Peter says, starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, in your pew Bible, it's on page 856. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I, will, and I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of God. Now the first lesson the passage teaches me is that Pentecost shows that the Holy Spirit has come for all of God's people. At, at Pentecost, a new day has dawned, and if we don't recognize it or understand what happened, we can go on living as if it didn't happen, and in so doing, miss out on an important thing that God wants to do in our lives. So Pentecost shows that the Holy Spirit has come for all of God's people. Uh, if the language is confusing to you, Pentecost was just a festival. It was a, uh, an important Jewish festival. Uh, the word penta might seem like pentagon or pentatonic. So you see the five in there. It was, it was 50 days after Passover. And all Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire would have gathered for uh, this import, important event. But on the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, it was not just business as usual. There was this great outpouring of God's Spirit. To understand how remarkable that is, we need to back up into the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God's Spirit came upon people, worked through people, filled people, but only very rarely and very selectively. So, for instance, there were some great prophets upon whom God uh, put his spirit, and uh, people like Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Uh, kings were symbolically anointed with oil to show that they received a, a special anointing of God's spirit for the task that he had called them to in leading the nation. And, and there were also times where uh, people would be given special tasks, uh, uh, there were craftsmen that worked on the temple, for instance, were said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task that they were given. But they were rare instances, select people. It was an unusual thing for God to give uh, his special empowerment and enablement uh, of, of people, and, and, and so it wasn't, it wasn't common. Uh, so much so that at one point, Moses, uh, uh, Moses longed for a day when it wouldn't just be this select group of people. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to lead the entire, uh, an entire nation, an entire group of God's people, and you're the only one who is filled with the Holy Spirit? It was a burden for, for, uh, uh, for Moses, so much so that at one point in his ministry, he said, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I can't. I can't continue like this. And God intervened and set apart 70 other leaders to help him with that task. And he, it says that he gave a portion of his spirit to uh, those 70. When he did that, Joshua and other leaders, he, he kind of felt, uh, felt badly for Moses because he thought, well, now Moses is going to lose his special position. And look at how Moses responds to him. He said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. 
He longed for a day when it wasn't just him or even just a group of 70. He longed for a day when all of God's people would receive of his spirit, would be enabled by him and sanctified by him because he felt the weight and responsibility of it. Joel said, that day is coming. Joel was another Old Testament prophet. He said, there is a day coming when God will pour out his spirit on all people. And then Peter stood up and said, the day has come. That's what you see before you. That's what is happening here. In Acts Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Sometimes people can think that this word tongues is, is kind of this special religious word. It's a technical word that, uh, uh, that just got created in the church or something, but that's not the case. It, would just, it was just a normal way of referring to speaking in other languages. Uh, Greeks used the word tongue the very, very similar to the way we use the word tongue when we say um, English isn't my native tongue. And we, we will talk about, lang- we'll use language. Often tongue means that thing in your mouth, but when we say, oh no, it's my late native tongue, or uh, we, we, are, we are talking about uh, language, and that's all that's happening here. That God had specially enabled his people to speak these other languages to the people that had gathered. If you're God and you want to get the message across that the Holy Spirit has been given to all believers, you need to do something fairly dramatic, fairly visible to send that message. Uh, If, for instance, as all of the people had gathered together and God poured out his Spirit on them, they had been filled with the Spirit and with the gift of serving, uh, many people would have been helped, but people wouldn't really understand why. They wouldn't really have understood that anything significant had taken place. And so God didn't do that. He showed it in a much more visible way. He enabled them to speak other languages, declaring his praises to uh, the many nations of people that were gathered on this, at this big religious festival to show something dramatic, something significant, a big change, a big uh, uh, event has taken place. And Peter gets up to describe that that event. Peter explained the message. In verse 16, he explains that it's a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Joel had prophesied of, during a time when there was a terrible plague, it was a plague of locusts that had come upon the nation of Israel, and he stood up, and the, the basic message of Joel is, this is a terrible catastrophe that's taken place, but it's only foreshadowing an even greater catastrophe that'll take place. It foreshadows the great day of the Lord, a day of of God's great judgment. But even as he was pointing to that day, he said, there's something that's going to take place before that day. That before that day comes, God will pour out his spirit on all people. The, the language of pouring that Joel used and Peter quoted here is, is interesting. I'm not sure what you think of when you th- hear the word pouring uh, or outpouring of God's Spirit. I, I think back to the uh, ALS bu- bucket, bucket, ice bucket challenge. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you did this. I'm sure any of you saw this. It, it kind of went viral on social media. I was back from, uh, back from Japan. It was hot. Um, got this 
huge um, bucket of water and, and ice and did this as uh, just showing my solidarity and spreading awareness for, uh, for, for the condition. But when I did that, everything about me was instantly soaked and wet and uh, uh, saturated with, uh, with water. And uh, John Piper says that, that, that language of pouring is important. He said, think of being soaked and saturated and swept along by the Spirit of God. That, that's, that's something of the message that's being communicated here. It is God's presence with his people, God's presence in his people, but in abundance, but in, in, a, in, in a sense of, uh, uh, of great, great nearness and, and power. Interestingly, though, it's not just God's spirit on Peter, not just the 12 disciples or a select group of believers. In verse 17, he says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Then he talks about young men, old men, male servants and female servants. And it's this incredible declaration of uh, a privilege for God's people, that God's spirit is being poured out on all of them. And the message is that you're not, you're not too, too young to be filled with this Holy Spirit. You are not too old to be filled with the Spirit. You're not too rich to need him or too poor to be deprived of him, that all of us need the filling of the Holy Spirit, regardless of gender, education level, or background or status, that this is the, an, an outpouring of God's Spirit for all of God's people. Why do you think God would do that? Like, why not just continue on as he was doing with maybe a, a person here, a person there, maybe if you've got some special, extra, extra special job, I'll fill that person with my spirit, but, but generally not. Like, what, why would God change the program? Presumably, it's because he has a special task and purpose and mission for all of us, right? Presumably, it's also because it's more urgent. He needs to get the message out more quickly, more, more, uh, with, with, uh, with more people involved in the game. Some, some of you, perhaps, here are uh, are young enough to think that this is your parents' church. That what's taking place here is mostly for old people. And when you get old, maybe you'll think about uh, uh, this thing called Christianity. But for now, it's, it's kind of not really on your radar. The message of this passage is that you're not too young for this. That, that God's, God fills... Uh, Young, young children with his spirit as they put their faith in him and trust in him. Some of you perhaps think that you're too old for all this stuff. Maybe you would look back to a different day where, you know, you, the things that you, you accomplished and, and maybe you needed God's spirit then, but you're kind of done with all that now. It, it seems to me that this passage is saying that, that that's not the case, that God's spirit is is given for, for all people. That there doesn't come an age where you don't kind of need God's spirit because he's kind of done with you. He may not want you to be doing the same things that you were doing when you were 20 or 40 or 60, but God's not done. That God wants to use your words, your hands, your feet, your, 
uh, your love, your encouragement, your prayers, whatever it might be, that he still has a plan for you. And so he fills you with his spirit and he sets you apart for his mission. So let him use you. And don't limit him to what you can do because often we can do that, right? Like and say, well, I'm kind of good at this and I've done a lot of that and, and this kind of comes naturally to me and so that's kind of what I can do and I can't do anything else. But if God has filled you with his spirit, like they couldn't speak these other languages until he'd filled them with his spirit. So presumably God can do things in and through our lives that we couldn't do without him. And so we need to think of ourselves as channels of his grace and his power in and through our lives. A.W. Tozer said something interesting in this regard. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. I, 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 ho- I hope that's not the tr- that wouldn't be the case here, but I wonder. Then he said, if the Holy Spirit had withdrawn had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. And the, the, the encouragement for us is to recognize if God has filled us with his spirit, he has done so for a purpose. And he has done so for all of God's people because he desires to use all of God's people. He has a mission for us. And as James Smith Smith said about sleep, we ought to take a posture of reception. We ought to take a posture that actively welcomes him. And we do that through a posture of dependence, to recognize through prayer, I need him. I need more of what God can do through me. A, a, A posture of faith that says, the Holy Spirit's in me. I can... I can do things that God calls me to do because he gives me strength to do so. It's having the eyes to see what what God can do and what God would do in and through me, not just what I can do. So Pentecost shows the Holy Spirit's come for all people. It also, I believe, teaches us something important about prophecy as well. Because after I'd introduced the topic of prophecy last week, I had a lot of really interesting conversations. Um, Conversations with many of you this week about what prophecy really is and whether prophecy still exists and and whether I'm a prophet and and whether what I'm doing right now is prophesying to you and and many of those those talks and and conversations. I, I believe this passage begins to help us with some of those questions. Because at Pentecost, surely prophecy means to Peter what it meant to Joel. Let me explain by what I mean by that. Peter stands up to talk about prophecy as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But when he does so, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. And he's saying, what's happening here is a fulfillment of what he said. So presumably, whatever Peter is saying about prophecy is the same as what Joel was saying is about prophecy. And so it'd probably be important to know what Joel meant by prophecy. And thankfully, I believe we know. Because in verse 17, Joel says something, but instead of saying, I think, or I heard this, or I've, I've read this somewhere, he doesn't say any of those things. Instead, he says, God declares. And he makes a declaration. 
He's not just trying to be bold or dramatic by saying God declares. God had literally uh, put those words into his mouth and was desiring to use Joel as, as a mouthpiece. And, and that's what God did with his prophets. For instance, God said to Moses in Exodus 4.12, Go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. That, that's different than what God does with me. Right? God, God doesn't kind of give me some special revelation and says, Paul, these are the words I want you to communicate them to, to his people. He, he guides me as I study, study the scriptures, but he's not giving me a special private message to deliver to you. Or Jeremiah said something similar when he said, Behold, uh, God said to him, I have put my words in your mouth. That's why the prophets would usually say, Thus says the Lord, or this is what the Lord says, or God declares. They weren't just quoting scripture, they were passing on a direct message that God had given them. God was literally speaking through them. And some people will ask me, and it's a good question, they'll say, well, but does prophecy always have to be predictive? Do you always have to make a prediction for it to be a prophecy? And the fact is, it doesn't. There's many passages and prophecies and in scripture that aren't predictive, but they're always revelatory. They are always revealing a message that God has given to the prophet. So in Joel's mind, you weren't a prophet just because you were bold and passionate about God's word. Being bold and passionate often came with it, and it's a good thing, but it's not the same as prophecy. In Joel's mind, you weren't a prophet because you taught the Bible. That's what teachers and rabbis did didn't make you a prophet. That's why he talks in verse 17 about seeing visions and dreaming dreams. Old Testament prophets prophets were revealers. They weren't just preachers. So when, when Joel talks about visions and dreams and prophecies, those things we know are different than sermons. I've never sat up on a Sunday morning and told you about this great dream that I had the previous night and said, not only did I, did I see this dream, I, I, God told me, tell the people uh, the next morning. That's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking at the revealed word of God, and I am teaching you what God has revealed to all of us. That's what a teacher does. There are some people, including some of today's greatest theologians, uh, and there's a difference of opinion on this, but there are some, some uh, great uh, theologians who believe that New Testament prophecy is fundamentally different than Old Testament prophecy. And here's how it goes. They teach that while prophecy used to be infallible, 100% true, every time, authoritative, and if you got it wrong, you could write that person off and stone them. In the New Testament, it's different. Uh, there's some that teach that in the New Testament, God just kind of gives the gist of things. He gives the thought, but not, near, not necessarily the words or the details. And so there's, there's kind of some interpretation in the process. And so they, they, in the New Testament, they can kind of make mistakes and, and they get it wrong sometimes. And, and so you, you don't get, get worked up about that. And I'm quite sure those theologians are a lot smarter than I am. And I'm, like, I'm very confident that that's the case. Uh, but it seems to me and to many others that prophecy ought to, meet the same, ought to mean the same thing to Peter that it meant to Joel. 
Because Peter is standing up and saying, what you see happening here is what Joel predicted. This is, this is what's, what's happening now in the new covenant. And it's hard for me to see that, that Peter would see this as a fulfillment of what Joel said. And Joel was talking about this great age of the Spirit. His sp- Spirit poured out on all God's people. And they were going to prophesy, but that what he really meant by prophecy was that they would kind of get it right about 65% of the time. They would kind of have some errors and mix it up, and uh, but God would kind of give them the gist of things and, and that they would often get the messages wrong. Hard for me to think that that's what he was saying in this new great age of the Spirit. But even if Joel was talking about some different kind of prophecy, you would think that he would give some hint that that was the case. Like, if, if there was going to be some dramatic change in what prophecy was in the Old Testament, or because remember, in the Old Testament, you got it wrong, they stoned you. If it was going to be different in the Old Testament than what it was in the New Testament, you'd think that he'd give some people some heads up, that there'd be some kind of clear descriptions. You know, what I'm talking about here is different from what I'm talking about here, but you look for those clear descriptions and... They're hard to find. So I think Pentecost shows that prophecy means to Peter what it meant to Joel. It's not just preaching. It's not just Christian shouting. It's not just saying to someone whatever pops into your head and a good Christian thought and then adding, adding on, thus says the Lord, or I think that the Lord told me to tell this to you, kind of give it an extra weight or punch or, or, or a sense of authority. That's not what we're talking about we are talking about things that God directly reveals to that prophet and that that prophet uh, communicates that message perfectly, authoritatively, and with, uh, with uh, God's uh, uh, seal upon it. Prophecy is declaring God has put in your mouth and commanded you to speak. And just as in the Old Testament, I believe God doesn't tolerate presumptuous prophecy. You don't just get to open your mouth and say whatever you like without the accountability of God's people. So Pentecost shows the Holy Spirit has come, teaches us something about the nature of prophecy, but finally it shows us that God wants to save people before it's too late. Because it would be possible for you and I to read through this passage and get so mesmerized by the, what it said about prophecy and dreams and visions that we miss actually the punchline of Uh, of the text and of the message because there's actually an urgent declaration that God wants to save people before it's too late. Now, remember how I said that Peter was quoting Joel to explain what was happening? And he's essentially saying this strange event that you see transpiring before you is a fulfillment of what I said would come, of what Joel said would take place. But did you hear how the prophecy of Joel starts? Peter quotes it in verse 17 with the words, In the last days it shall be. What he's saying is that the phenomenon of Pentecost, as as strange and unusual and amazing as they were, were an indication that the last days had come. And according to Joel's prophecy and and the words of the other prophets, while the last thing that would, when you entered into the last days, the next thing that would happen would be the day of the Lord a terrible day of God's judgment. The reason that God had poured out his spirit on all believers and enabled them to 
share his message with others was because that message was so desperately urgent. That there was an, an urgency to this new phase of God's, uh, of God's plan. There's not much time left. In verse 19 and 20, there's a description of what's coming. There's, there's in verse 19, blood and fire and smoke, and they seem to be like images of, uh, of, of war and terror. In verse 20, it says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. It, it's, it's this sense of this apocalyptic uh, uh, of events that are about to transpire. And the message is, God's judgment is near. There is not much time left. And so God pours out his spirit on all of God's people, sends them out with a message to share because that message is so urgent, because the time is so short. He wants to save as many people as he can before it's too late. And he's still seeking to make his final appeal through his people. Still seeking to do that through your life. He wants you to feel the urgency that he feels He wants you to feel that this is your mission too. That's why he's given you his spirit. That's why he fills you. That's why he empowers you. That's why he enables you to do things that you would ordinarily not be able to do. And there's some of you this morning who would probably say, Paul, I I haven't actually responded to that message yet. I've kind of heard about it. I've, I've thought about it for a while, but I've never responded. And I, I, would, I would encourage you to listen very carefully to verse 21 because it's there that the punchline of God's message comes. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved is the language of rescue. You don't, it's not talking about helping people or just blessing people or kind of give them a pat on the back or, a, or an encouragement. You talk about saving someone who is in a desperate uh, uh, circumstance. You, you want to rescue them. You want to uh, bring relief to them. We all need rescuing from our sins and rescuing from the judgment that those sins bring upon us. But it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It, it, it seems too easy. It seems like yeah, there must be more to it than that. They must be there must be a bunch of, of, of rules and steps and conditions and things to overcome. The picture here is of a dying world in its last days with, with blood and fire and smoke from verse 19 being not far away. The sun that's darkened and the moon that turns to blood is around the corner. Judgment is near and the, the appeal is all you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord but you need to do so with urgency. Luke records at the end of this passage that of this crowd that had gathered to watch, they, they, they saw this strange phenomenon. They heard Peter explain what had brought it about. It says that 3,000 people responded to the message. He had told them that the way you respond is the way that you call upon the name of the Lord is by repenting and showing your repentance and baptism. A, 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 a declaration that you desire to receive what God has freely offered. I'd urge you to, to do that. To respond to that message that God gives you. And not to think in your mind, no, this is, 
This is too easy. There must be something I need to contribute to it. There must be something I can add to it. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the rescue that you've made possible. I pray for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet called on the name of the Lord. Would you draw them to yourself? Will you, would you help them to see how urgent the message is, how short the time is? And I pray, Father, as a congregation, that we would welcome the filling of your Spirit, your working in our lives. Help us to rely on what only he can do in and through us. Unleash all of us, Father, on mission for you. Use us for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.